Thanks for downloading the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers on the history of medicine and medical humanities, which were given to audiences in University College Dublin as part of the Centre seminar series. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash body In this episode, Dr. Sarah York of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, UCD. Dr. York's paper was entitled, Whether Suicidal or Dangerous to Others, The Certification and Admission of Suicidal Lunatics, 1853-1908. to Elizabeth Bevel was admitted to Worcestershire County Lunatic Asylum on the 22nd of February 1870, aged 44. She was diagnosed as suffering from acute mania characterised by excited and agitated behaviour. She was also described as both suicidal and dangerous to others. On admission to the asylum, she was enveloped in a straight waistcoat and her legs bound together. Her certificate of insanity stated that she is extremely violent and unmanageable, endeavouring to injure persons near her, particularly her husband, and threatens to destroy herself and has attempted suicide by drowning. This single case example embodies several of the common precipitants of committal to 19th century public lunatic asylums. Aggression, violence, dangerous or suicidal behaviour, sometimes in a combination as seen in Elizabeth's case, were frequent reasons for seeking institutional confinement. Attempted suicide or threat of it, shared with violent assault, was the ultimate justification for confinement in the asylum. At its most basic level, certification divided the insane from the sane and removed the dangerous from society, imposing social stigma and labelling individuals in accordance with the diagnostic language of 19th century psychiatry. Admission registers, reception orders and certificates of insanity have largely been used by historians of psychiatry and the asylum for the purposes of quantitative research, to create socio-economic profiles of patient populations, provide detailed accounts of the clinical characteristics of those admitted and also to establish annual rates of admissions into institutions. Despite the proliferation of literature on the history of psychiatry in recent decades, there still remains very little research on the process of certification itself. The work of some historians, which some of you may be familiar with, such as Joseph Mellon and David Wright, has begun the process of re-examining assumptions about the social role of asylums and medical control over the apparatus of confinement. Their work has demonstrated that the confinement of the insane was usually the culmination of a series of judgments and decisions made by various agencies, including poor law officials, magistrates and, of course, relatives and friends of those insane. In fact, Wright argues that control over confinement was predicated upon the desires of families. They were active agents in the process, while medical men, particularly asylum medical superintendents, were increasingly pushed to the periphery. Within this paradigm, the role of the family has been brought to the fore of discussion. Historians are increasingly turning to questions concerning the central role of the family and the way medical and lay agencies interacted with each other. The study of the process of confinement is indispensable to our understanding of the evolution and dissemination of ideas about insanity and suicide. Certificates of insanity reveal much about 19th century tolerance of insanity and, for my research, suicidal behaviour by domestic households and the reasons why suicidal lunatics were committed to the asylum. At the time of certification, persons suspected as insane were described by family members and friends as well as being observed by a certifying doctor. These descriptions were incorporated into committal papers and were later transferred to patient case notes, providing rich evidence of historians of the ways that a lay population understood and described insanity and its relationship to suicide. 
This paper will assess the impact of suicidal behaviour in determining the committal of individuals to county lunatic asylums in England. It will illuminate the process by which a suicidal individual was identified, labelled and dispatched to the asylum. In particular, I'll be focusing on the communication and exchange of information that occurred between lay individuals, certifying doctors and asylum medical staff. The paper will uncover the precipitating factors which led to committal, shedding light on how and why families use the asylum. It will concentrate on the language of suicide, which was frequently dominated by references to dangerousness and risk. Suicide represented a direct threat to the individual's well-being, but it could also um, be a danger to those around them because they could have violent, um, show violence towards them. The threat associated with suicide was often expressed and measured in terms of dangerousness. By emphasising the danger inherent in insanity and suicide, families and medical men were able to justify the practice of confinement as preventive action against self-destruction. The paper focuses on the period from 1853 to 1890 as the two dates signal notable changes in lunacy legislation that affected the certification of the insane. The post-1853 certificate, which remained in place until uh, 1890, included for the first time lay as well as medical descriptions of disordered behaviour and symptoms. The mix of medical approaches to insanity and suicide with lay ideas presents interesting interpretive possibilities and comparative material for understanding the process of certification. In this paper, I will draw on the certificates of insanity, reception orders and also early entries in patient case books of three 19th century asylums to identify the behaviours that triggered the certification of suicidal lunatics. And just in case, as historians, we're not too good with geography. Uh, the, uh, not a generalisation there. The three institutions um, that I will draw upon are uh, Leicestershire County Asylum, which is the earliest there, eight, opening in 1837, and then Worcestershire and Birmingham, both of which opened in 1852. And as you can see, they are all pretty much from the sort of central region um, of England. The 1811 County Asylums Amendment Act made certification of insanity for the confinement of any person to a county asylum, a private establishment or a voluntary hospital a legal requirement. Overseers of the poor were to send to the county magistrate an application for the conveyance of a lunatic, insane person or dangerous idiot to the county asylum, complete with a certificate that was to be signed by one medical person. Between 1811 and 1828, the requirements over certification were extended to include a second admission document, the reception order. Reception orders required that a local parish clergyman or magistrate complete a profile of the patient at the time of admission, which was to be signed by the parish poor law union clerk. And as you'll see in a moment from the content, it's very much more a sort of social profile of the patient rather than being uh, intrinsically medical. The reception order listed the inmate's age, gender, marital status, past history and medical characteristics. It also asked explicitly whether the patient was suicidal or dangerous to others. Thus, from the earliest years of the English asylum system, a decision had to be made on every patient about the likelihood of their committing suicide. The inclusion of whether suicidal in the reception order was recognition of the self-harm to which medical men and wider society saw the insane to be vulnerable. The semantics of the question whether suicide law dangerous to others is in itself significant. The alignment of suicide and danger implied an inherent association existed between the two forms of behaviour, that they were akin to each other. 
Theorisation as to the causes of suicide and the relationship of suicide to insanity was stimulated in the early to mid-19th century by the reforming of suicide as a medical concern. This is something that was an element of continuity from the 18th century and the concept of secularisation. Through the reconstruction of suicide as a kind of madness and insanity being perceived as dangerous, the necessity of uh, containment could be justified. Suicide and insanity were continually brought together in the writings of alienists or early psychiatrists to illustrate that the madman who possessed a suicidal propensity was a threat to society because he was dangerous and often cunning um, when pursuing his suicidal propensity. Medical discourse frames suicide as a dangerous illness, thereby encouraging lay and medical interpretations of the suicidal lunatic to be defined by the language of dangerousness and risk. The revised Certificates of Insanity created by the 1853 Lunatics Amendment Act marked a major development in the process of certification. The certification, the Certificate of Insanity for Pauper Patients required the signing medical practitioner to state his name, licence, medical practice, the date and place of certification and the person being duly certified. And the place of certification could vary. It could be um, the workhouse, for example, if the patient was there prior to committal. Most commonly it would be, be the home. The practitioner then stated facts indicating insanity observed by himself and below this space he was now obliged to record other facts indicating insanity communicated to him by others and state from whom this evidence had come from which usually was family members or if it was the workhouse it might actually be nurses and attendants who'd been involved in the patient's care up to that point. And an example here of the um, format of the post-1853 certificate this is for a male patient called John Dell, who was 69 years old, and he was admitted based on the um, evidence provided by George Gillam, who is the medical practitioner, who was um, classified as being a surgeon. And you can see that there really isn't a great deal of space for either the uh, medical or lay evidence. And as a result, very often accounts were sort of very short and a little bit anecdotal, obviously from sort of uh, family members and relatives. But in the uh, facts indicating insanity observed by uh, the doctor, he states that he is very irrational and desponding, has an idea that immediate death by starvation will take place, is wondering and incoherent in conversation, and has a wild, anxious countenance. It's not a huge amount of sort of medically-based information included there that would um, determine a diagnostic classification as reference to a delusion and the general sense that the person's sort of mental faculties are affected. Um, the second section which is the uh, lay evidence in this instance coming from the patient's wife states that he has been delirious for several days and last night he tore his bedclothes and her nightcap into pieces that he every few minutes counts his money consisting of a few shillings and two half sovereigns is very restless despondent, and she fears he is likely to do mischief to himself so a little bit more information more of a sort of patient history sort of social background and I think importantly is the infer inference that um, he is potentially dangerous to himself, certainly destructive to, um, to property within the home. This creates a certain degree of fear and uncertainty for those caring for him. And so through both sets of information, really, we gain, start to gain a sense of the patient's life and the circumstances leading to mental collapse, which go towards explaining the uh, onset and cause of the affliction. The inclusion of lay testimonies by the institutionalising family reduced medical control over the confinement of the insane and demonstrates that households took the lead in certification. 
The mix of medical approaches and lay ideas gives historians an opportunity to examine the certification process, making greater use of qualitative analysis of documentary material, so that we may better understand the interplay between the agencies who determine committal. So having contextualised the sort of legal protocol behind certification, I'll now consider the suicidal patient's path to committal and the precipitating factors documented in admission records. The overwhelming majority of patients admitted to the asylum, whether suicidal or not, came from the domestic sphere. In his study of Leicestershire County Asylum, Peter Bartlett sampled the institution's admission records for the 1860s and found that 60% of patients came, from the, came to the asylum from their home. Bartlett's sample included all patient categories admitted during a 10-year period, but even more striking results are found when analysing uh, suicidal admissions. So you can see um, here I've taken a 20-year sample from 1853 to 73 from the three institutions that I'm focusing on. And quite clearly from the data there you can see that the vast majority of um, patients were admitted direct from the domestic household. And a sort of smaller though still significant number coming from the workhouse and then very much sort of dribs and drabs from other institutions such as prisons or hospitals where uh, patients may have found themselves previously. I think the fact that um, so many patients are coming direct from the domestic household should go some way towards supporting the idea that families actually try to retain the lunatics for as long as possible within the home rather than seeing the asylum as a very sort of easy alternative um, in which they could um, offload their burden of responsibility. And certainly if you look further on admission documents and case books at the duration of insanity that's given, again, that can be used as a, a sort of indicator as to how long possibly the patient has been retained in the home, since usually the uh, duration of insanity would be listed as sort of weeks or months. So it's, I suppose it's impressionistic, but nonetheless it's a way of, of exploring that further. As the primary carers prior to confinement, it was usually family members who made the decision to confine an individual by approaching the medical and poor law authorities. The active involvement of families gives an indication that the confinement of the same was not a direct consequence of a professionalising psychiatric elite, but rather was a strategic response of households to the stresses of unmanageable behaviour. Certification offered the family first and foremost protection from the patient's extreme and dangerous behaviour. In fact, many committals were preventive, a response to violence, threats, abusive language or suicide attempts. For families struggling emotionally, physically and financially to manage disordered behaviour, the asylum represented the guarantee of safety from the storms of a destructive, dangerous and sometimes unpredictable suicidal propensity. Fear of violence was the overriding concern expressed by the husband of Caroline Finch, who was admitted to Birmingham Asylum in 1871. On her reception order, she was classified as both suicidal and dangerous to others, facts that were substantiated by her husband's testimony. Charles Finch stated that she has threatened to destroy herself and the children and has attempted to strangle one of the children. He concluded that it is not safe for her to be at home. The asylum had an obvious custodial function which was invoked for the protection of the suicidal lunatic himself, but it could also be a safe haven that provided families with a period of respite and of alleviated pressures and potential familial conflict. Institutionalisation removed a disruptive individual, relieving the household, as I've said, of its burden, while at the same time it could also promise medical treatment and possible cure, something that families um, you know, were keen to, uh, to obtain. Despite the best endeavours of some families to manage the suicidal lunatic as long as possible at home, making use of restraint or employing, this, employing the assistance of a medical attendant, domestic provision eventually proved inadequate in most cases. Before her admission to Worcestershire Asylum, Elizabeth Adams was attended by a medical man at her home. 
Owing to her suicidal propensity, as proven by several attempts to hang herself, Elizabeth was watched day and night by two attendants. In addition, a straitjacket as well as manual restraint was frequently employed. The behaviour of Elizabeth Jackson also warranted the assistance of a medical attendant. Later admitted to Leicestershire Asylum, Elizabeth's husband employed the services of an attendant in consequence of her determination to destroy herself. Her husband was duly instructed by the medical attendant to remove everything out of her reach by which she could possibly injure herself. He unfortunately left his razors in their usual place and his wife in a manical proxim attempted her life by cutting her throat with one of them. The usual failure of such interventions forced families to concede that the resources of the domestic household, even when temporarily strengthened by a medical assistant, were unable to confine and restrain the suicidal as comprehensively as the asylum with its prevention strategies and experienced staff. Though many asylum admissions came from domestic households, a considerable number originated from the workhouse. Workhouses certainly sent their quota of the hard to manage, which frequently included the violent and suicidal. The criterion most commonly used most commonly as a basis for removal from the workhouse appears to have been that of dangerousness. Those inmates whom, asylum, whom workhouse staff viewed as susceptible to extreme behavioural outbursts were most likely to be consigned to the asylum. In their work on the Devon County Asylum, um, Richard Adair, Bill Forsyth and Joseph Melling identified three forms of bad behaviour that were never tolerated for long. Unsurprisingly, these are quite at the extreme of the, the dangerous scale. Arson, attempted suicide, and outrageous immorality, which is quite open-ended. I'm not sure what exactly is classified under that category. The threat of suicide was intolerable to workhouse staff for two main reasons. Firstly, the demands that careful supervision of the suicidal placed on their resources. Secondly, the danger suicidal patients posed to attendants and other, um, other inmates as they were uh, prone to violent outbursts. The transfer of dangerous lunatics to the asylum was also a legal obligation under the 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act. Section 45 of the Act prohibited the detention of dangerous lunatics for more than 14 days. The intention was to relieve pressure on the workhouse by diverting difficult inmates to public or private asylums, institutions that were deemed more appropriate for the care of the mentally disordered. Disruptive behaviour prompted the transfer of James Millwood from Nottingham Union Workhouse to Leicestershire Asylum. James suffered from mania of a chronic character and violent form. He was described by workhouse staff as the annoyance and terror of the inmates. On two occasions, he has manifested the most dangerous suicidal propensity, having twice attempted to hang himself. Rhoda Free was also removed to Leicestershire in 1860. The workhouse authorities st stated that she attempts to tear her clothes. She has been a disorderly inmate. At times, she threatens suicide. Efficient institutional management meant the good administration of the workhouse, and insofar as the insane and suicidal compromised that order, the workhouse staff would have viewed such inmates as problematic and would have been quite keen to move them on to the asylum. Once household members or workhouse officials petitioned local poor law authorities and magistrates to, to permit the confinement of a suicidal person, as we've seen, legal and medical validation was required in the form of a certificate of insanity. An initial diagnosis of insanity was often made by a poor law medical officer based on the facts indicating insanity observed by himself. It was stated that the diagnosis he gave should be a statement of facts observed by the medical man himself, which would carry conviction to the mind of anyone reading it that the persons to whom it referred must be of unsound mind. 
The section in which medical men recorded their observations was somewhat small, restricting the amount of detail that they could actually provide. Medical statements were characterised by short phrases rather than detailed expositions of the patient's symptoms and behaviour. In general, the statement gave a limited summary of the patient's mental and physical condition, including indications of a suicidal propensity. Hannah Carter was admitted to Birmingham Asylum in 1863. She was considered epileptic, dangerous to others and suicidal. The facts indicating insanity observed by the certifying doctor recorded her begging of me to finish her by means of poison, stating that it is owing to irritability of her feelings and not pain. In addition, it was noted that she threatened self-destruction and attempted suicide this morning. The medical statement given in the certificate of Caroline Lilly contained exceptionally short phrases that amount to little more than a vague description of the patient's general characteristics and demeanour. She was described as having a dejected look, fixed absence stare, delusions and was melancholy. So quite well how she was classified as suicidal based on that, I'm not sure, but she was recorded as being suicidal. Legal requirements concerning certification demanded the medical statement provide details of the patient's symptoms, but as John Bucknell, who was um, medical superintendent at Devon County Asylum, pointed out, in what form can the grounds of this conclusion be stated in a brief and formal, though sufficient, manner? Indications of a suicidal propensity could also be drawn from the physical evidence of a self-inflicted wound. A healing wound or scar confirmed that the patient was actively suicidal, having progressed from a state of contemplation to the act of attempted suicide. This could be perceived as a distinct indication that the patient was a high risk, as well as proving the inability of domestic or workhouse care to manage the threat of suicide. Physical evidence also enabled the certifying doctor to verify accounts of attempted suicide given by relatives, which, as we'll see shortly, could of course always be ambiguous or exaggerated. Facts indicating the insanity of Charles Starkin, admitted to Birmingham in 1871, recorded a wound in his throat which he says he inflicted upon himself, feeling an uncontrollable impulse to destroy himself. The external appearance of George Harrison, a patient at Leicestershire Asylum, was described as unfavourable due to a loss of blood, the consequence of a wound in the throat extending from ear to ear. The short statements commonly recorded in Certificates of Insanity are reflective both of shortcomings in the certifying doctor's knowledge and the restricted format of the certificate. There was no checklist of symptoms upon which the doctor should comment, merely the requirement that something had to be recorded. Furthermore, very few of the certifying doctors, who could be either a physician, surgery or apothecary, but generally tended to be surgeons, would have been formally schooled in insanity. The system of certification was therefore dependent on local medical practitioners with either no or very limited background in the institutional treatment of disordered behaviour. It is possible that a handful of medical practitioners may of course had access to the growing literature on insanity, which would have given them general comments on what did and did not constitute insanity, but the practical aspect of how to conduct a medical certification was clearly lacking. The bound, naturally then, the boundaries between insane and sane, suicidal and dangerous, were open to interpretation by medical men who approached certification with varying levels of knowledge and experience. Without details of the patient's history, the evidence observed and documented by medical men did not constitute a definitive assessment of the patient's condition. The testimony of relatives, friends or neighbours was invaluable in providing supplementary information about the lunatic's mental deterioration, any peculiar behaviour and the presence of suicidal ideation or a recent suicide attempt. 
The inclu inclusion of lay observations in the post-1853 Certificate of Insanity was an admission by medical men that supporting evidence from non-medical sources assisted their diagnosis. Buckner argued that whilst facts communicated by others should not usually supersede those observed by the medical man, they could be allowed to form the prominent features of a statement where a suicidal tendency existed. Unless the lunatic made an admission of suicide during certification or there may have been evidence from a, a scar, previous suicide attempts were, unlikely, were likely to remain unknown to the certifier since obviously they couldn't be um, suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts couldn't be detected by observation alone. When called to examine an alleged lunatic, Buckner advised that the certifying doctor should not proceed directly to personal examination, but should listen to the narrative of the family or the near relations in order to gain vital snippets of information that would assist identification, diagnosis and subsequent treatment. Familial comments are a rare insight into lay, often working-class attitudes to both suicide and insanity. Admission documents give us some indication of the kind of behaviour which families found so intolerable, disrupted or dangerous that they were willing to resort to certification. Testimony reflected lay definitions of insanity and suicide, they're certainly not diagnostic in the medical sense. Consequently, lay observations should be read as indications of insanity rather than distinct symptoms that were defined by a medical framework. The inclusion of lay evidence, although certainly valuable, should always be treated with caution. Lay assessments of insanity and suicide were the result of subjective judgments that were often defined as much in relation to the family's ability and willingness to manage the suicidal as to the lunatic's own safety and mental well-being. Families were known to misinform asylum doctors about the patient's condition and situation at home in order to secure certification. Ambiguity could arise from the emotive language often used to describe the patient's condition and stress the most dangerous aspects of their suicidal propensity. Great emphasis was placed on the devious, destructive and threatening character of the suicidal lunatic, with observers repeating particular phrases and drawing attention to evidence of unmanageable and extreme behaviour. In the admission of Alice Davis to Birmingham in 1871, her sister stated that she is very dangerous if left alone. The same comment was made of Sarah Martin prior to her admission in May 1871. Her sister-in-law claimed that she is de too dangerous to be left alone. Evidence given in the certification of William Wyatt, a patient at Worcestershire Asylum, stated that he made a, a determined attempt to commit suicide by cutting his throat. Phrases such as very dangerous and determined are frequently deployed in lay narratives, emphasising the severity of the patient's condition and no doubt hoping to hasten their admission to the asylum. If an individual was considered to be determined as proven by repeated suicide attempts, then the danger they posed strengthened the family's case for committal as a preventive strategic response to what seemed to be a genuine risk. Attempted suicide or threats of self-destruction acted as direct triggers for admission to the asylum. A suicidal propensity was considered by many in both the lay and medical world to be irrefutable evidence of insanity and justification in itself for institutional committal. By the early to mid-19th century, family and friends were more inclined to construe suicidal behaviour as a byproduct of insanity rather than to be religious or supernatural in origin. Psychiatry's medical paradigm gave reassurance that the condition arose from an emotional or physical cause that could be treated and effectively managed, preferably in the asylum. Threats of self-destruction and attempted suicide dominate the admission tables of 19th century asylums as the major precipitants of committal. Um, 
other precipitants that were quite common and would sort of feature at that higher end with suicide was also things such as drink and violence. So you can see they're very much sort of related as, as more dangerous and extreme forms of behaviour. So again, a few figures to throw at you from a 20-year sample. Um, you can quite clearly see that an overwhelming majority, sort of um, 16 in Birmingham's case, 80% of admissions um, had demonstrated a suicide attempt or in many instances, suicide attempts would be referenced as several attempts being made, sometimes using different uh, methods um, of suicide. And the end category you'll see there, no outward signs, which is how I've sort of chosen to label, um, is considerably high, sort of 20 to 25%. And by that, it's where the patient has been recorded as suicidal, and very often it will say little more than reported as suicidal, which infers that some information must have been possibly conveyed from family um, as, as to a suicidal propensity being present, but there's certainly no um, record of suicide attempts or verbalisation. So, again, it's a little bit of a grey area where you can't really ascertain as to why <coughs> that label has been applied. A notable, fe notable feature of this trend was the frequent occurrence of attempted suicide on the day of admission or during the days immediately before. Geoffrey Rahm, in his study of the Toronto Hospital for the Insane, suggests that some patients approach their impending committal with a grave sense of fear and loathing. However, from my research, I would argue that a suicide attempt was more likely to be recorded as the causal factor that triggered committal rather than a reactive response to impending institutionalisation. Elizabeth Cound, admitted to Worcestershire Asylum in 1868, was certified as suffering from acute mania with a suicidal propensity. It was stated by her aunt that the day previous to admission she had attempted suicide by drowning. Details of the patient's history disclosed that she attempted to drown both herself and the child in a pool near her home, but was rescued by a passerby and taken to the police station. The magistrate, doubting her sanity, at once sent for a medical man who certified that she was of unsound mind and an order was made for her admission. Unlike the previous example, the actions of Frederick Sheward took place within the private sphere. Frederick had twice attempted to hang himself, including the morning of his admission, when he was cut down by his wife when found black in the face. Reference in lay testimony to a dramatic suicide attempt as evidence of extreme conduct sheds light on the lunatic's deterioration in behaviour, but the reasons for its inclusion may sometimes be questionable. It is plausible that desperation and fear encourage some families to embellish facts or overstate the severity of the suicide risk in order to obtain committal and relieve pressure on the domestic household. The suggestion here is not that families indiscriminately concocted false, false accounts, but that the events of a genuine act of self-destruction could be manipulated to stress the immediacy with which asylum care was required to avert future attempts. Caution is, however, needed as this inferred explanation cannot be fully confirmed by the brief statements given on admission documents. Yet despite problems of interpretation, what remains apparent is the notable trend of attempted suicides recorded shortly before admission and which one would presume must have hastened the lunatic's committal. It was not always necessary for a patient to physically attempt suicide to gain admission to the asylum. Certainly repeated threats of self-harm and a desire for self-destruction are commonly cited in suicidal cases and were accepted as sufficient evidence that the person required institutional care. Lucy Smith was admitted to Birmingham in 1870, having suffered an attack of insanity for three months. Her mother declared that she had threatened to drown herself and used violence towards her mother. Facts indicating insanity observed by the certifying doctor also refer to the patient's suicidal propensity. She states that she is tired and would throw herself in the water if she could. 
Similar intent characterised the behaviour of Esther Lawson, a patient committed to Birmingham in 1871. Her sister gave evidence that she often threatened suicide and has threatened to kill her child. This was confirmed during certification when the certifying doctor concluded that she was suffering from melancholia and is tired of life and has an idea of destroying herself. Threats of suicide revealed that the individual was in a state of dangerous contemplation that could and often did evolve into attempted suicide, an outcome that may well be prevented by committal to the asylum. The indications of insanity and suicide observed by relatives offer a unique insight into lay attitudes and interpretations, but it's important to remember that admission documents were filled out by medical practitioners rather than the family members themselves, thus adding the problem of what was filtered out or to what extent lay terms were overridden or edited. The material selected by officials was, as historian John Walton argues, coloured by their own preconceptions and by their initial impressions of the patient. Lay testimony was subject to dilution in the hand of the medical practitioner. Therefore, historians must take account of the potential deficiencies admission documents may contain as a result. Neither the family's representation nor the observations of the certifying doctor provided a solid or infallible test of insanity. The construction of the suicidal lunatic was the work of many hands and the outcome of a series of assessments and judgments that were framed by medical and non-medical interpretations of insanity, suicide and risk. In both lay and medical accounts, as we've seen, the terms dangerous and determined are readily employed as a rationale for the immediate committal of suicidal lunatics, whose behaviour was proven to be unmanageable outside the asylum. These terms formed the common language employed to describe and measure the risk associated with suicide, Dangerousness crops up again and again in the discourse of suicide and insanity, allowing lay and medical persons to compartmentalise and identify the suicidal lunatic according to the boundaries of risk and manageability. So to bring everything together in conclusion, certificates of insanity reveal much about 19th century tolerance of difficult behaviour, the reasons why individuals were committed and the kinds of behaviour most likely to lead to admission. Evidence of this is drawn from the three main agencies involved in the process of certification, the family, the certifying doctor and the patient. Despite the family's leading role and the importance of their testimony, the process of certification for suicidal lunatics remained one of codependency between medical and lay parties. Detailed analysis of admission documents and case notes has encouraged historians to perceive and study the workings of the asylum as an ongoing collaboration between families, medical men, patients and official authority. Only with the inclusion of both observed and communicated facts could a certificate of insanity provide a comprehensive picture of the mental disorder's etiology and the manifest form and severity of the patient's suicidal propensity. Accounts of suicide attempts reported in lay testimony provided clues as to the patient's determination and ingenuity, as well as to the mode of suicide that they chose. From these accounts, medical men, particularly the medical superintendents, assuming responsibility for care, gleaned important details about the idiosyncrasies of the patient's propensity, details that inform the patient's early treatment and management. The interface between the family and the asylum actively empowered families whilst preventing medical men from establishing a monopoly over the certification of suicidal lunatics. Institutional confinement of suicidal lunatics was for the most part predicated on the need to preserve life. The asylum isolated the suicidal from society so that their behaviour could be monitored and controlled with the intention of obstructing suicide and ensuring patient safety. Its function as an apparatus of social control and conformity was subordinate in the management of people who had to be protected from themselves. 
The certification and admission of suicidal lunatics was driven by a strategy of protection and prevention that was intended to manage and reduce the apparent or real risk of suicide amongst the insane population. Detailed analysis of the lay and medical evidence recorded in Certificates of Insanity reveals that suicidal behaviour is one of the chief factors which prompted and often speeded up admission to the asylum, a decision that was judged on the criteria of dangerousness, manageability and the effective prevention of suicide. Okay.